Wow, thank you, brother. Thank you for reading the scripture. Good morning. It is good to see you here. I'm grateful to see you here this morning. I see a few new faces. So my name is Mike, one of the pastors here, along with Pastor Charles and Pastor Cleet. Um, I don't know that I've ever said this before, a message before, but I'm, I'm saying it with great conviction this morning, and that is this. I want to ask you to take responsibility with me to ensure that every member of this church, any, every person that calls this church even home, not even as a member, but comes through, listens to this sermon. Not because I'm speaking it, certainly. Not because the Apostle Paul, but ultimately because the living God himself. And as I have sweat, and at times almost groaned over 1 Corinthians 3, I thought this is a word that the church needs to hear. Sometimes Paul uses a carrot, and other times a stick. Sometimes he comes at us with kid gloves, and sometimes he comes with us at us with boxing gloves. He's got some strong things to say, but it's because he loves the church. Most of all, the Lord who inspired him to give this word loves the church. So would you, would you take responsibility with me on that? Would you do that? Somebody you know, so you know, a, a family member, a friend, whoever. And if somebody gets six emails and three texts with a sermon link, that would be okay. Because I want us to be washed by the water of 1 Corinthians 3, and I know all the elders do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would have your way with us today. As Brian said so clearly, we have been bought by the blood and brought home by the Spirit. That is incredible truth. We were once children of wrath, but now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as verse 2 goes on to say, let us walk according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Every, uh, well, maybe you've seen sometime in your life some parent saying to his or her small child, how much does daddy love you? How much does mommy love you? And then the answer is, I don't know. And then the parent stretches out their arms, this much. I love you this much. It's, you've seen that, right? It's kind of cute. I love you to the moon and back sometimes. That's the recent thing. How much, church, does God love you? How much? This wide, cross wide, right? Or to the cross and back, right? God loves us immensely, profoundly, and we could never possibly begin to exaggerate the depth of God's love for us, his church, right? I mean, it says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, right? Jesus loves the church so much, he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. By the way, that promise still holds. 
He loves the church so much, he said, I'm coming back for you. I'm coming back for my bride, John 14. How much does God love the church? More than we could ever state. We could never possibly overstate God's love for the church. Would you agree God cares deeply for the church? He does. Now, listen here. God not only cares deeply for the church, God deeply cares how deeply you and I care about the church. In other words, God cares about how we care for the church. If there was ever a time when God would say, you know what, maybe the church ain't such a great idea. Why don't you go do something else? You know, make sure it's still spiritual, but, but don't worry about it. I would say it would be something he could say to the church at Corinth with all of her many, many myriads of issues, right? But the Holy Spirit inspires Paul not to write a letter to shut down or close the church. Rather, he inspires him to write a letter to correct the church because the church was succumbing to the Corinthian effect. What's the Corinthian effect? Do you remember that? Letting culture, or I should qualify this, letting fallen culture impact her far more than she realized. Do you think there's a possibility that we are letting culture influence us far more than we could possibly realize? It's like a fish, it's in the water so it doesn't know it's wet? They were succumbing to the Corinthian effect. Culture was influencing them more than they realized. And on this very matter of the theme that this text is about, caring for the church, on this very matter of caring for the church, I would say this, that the world's view of organized religion, the world's view of spiritual authority, the world's narcissistic mentality of, you know, what's in it for me? And if I don't agree with everything, I'm out, and I'll move on. I think is influencing the body of Christ far more than we realize. This is the Corinthian effect. Now, in preparing for the sermon, I I exegete the text, I look at commentaries, if I'm driving here and there, I'll listen to some sermons on the text, and, and, I, and I came across uh, a pastor who quoted a woman that I had never even heard of in my life. Lillian Daniel is her name. She, was, she talks a lot about people who consider th- themselves spiritual, but not religious, right? We've all talked to somebody like, like that, right? I'm spiritual, but not religious. S-B-N-R, spiritual but not religious. She is um, a minister in a very, very liberal denomination, yet has some incredible insight on this S-N-B-R, spiritual but not religious dynamic that is having a Corinthian effect on the church. Now, warning, 
I'm going to read you a long quote, probably the longest quote I've ever read in the 20-something years I've been preaching. This, is, this would not pass homiletics 101. They say you never read a quote, at least a long one in the introduction. Well, I'm doing it. She is snarky. She's very sarcastic. By the way, Paul will be a bit sarcastic next week. We'll see that. A little bit here, too. Um, I actually listened to an interview, and she defends why. She says, I'm really trying to get people's attention. But l- l- let me read. She said, on airplanes, I dread the conversation with the person who finds out I'm a minister and wants to use the flight time to explain to me that he is spiritual but not religious. Such a person will always share this with me as if it is some kind of daring insight, unique to him, bold in its rebellion against the religious status quo. Next thing you know, he's telling me that he finds God in the sunsets. These people always find God in the sunsets. She's writing this, not me. And in walks on the beach, Sometimes I think these people never leave the beach or the mountains. What with all the communing with God they do on the hilltops, hiking trails, and oh, did I fail to mention the beach at sunset yet. Like people who go to church don't see God in the sunset. Like we are these monastic little hermits who never leave the church building. How lucky we are to have these geniuses inform us that God is in nature as if we didn't know that, as if we didn't hear that in the Psalms, the creation stories, and throughout our deep tradition. She's writing this, not me. Later on, she'll say, of course, well-meaning Sunday jogger fits right into mainstream American culture. He perhaps by now is part of the majority, people who stepped away from the church in favor of running or newspaper reading, coffee, or yoga, or whatever they use to construct a more convenient religion of their own. Now, this approach works as long as there are rainbows and the kids are happy. But it doesn't work so well in the face of tantrums, selfishness, and dare I say it, sin? Most self-developed Sunday rituals have little room for sin. If we made a church for all these spiritual but not religious people and we got them together to talk about their beliefs and incredibly unique faith, they might find out that most Americans actually agree with them. But that'll never happen. They'll never find that out because getting together would be way too much like church and they're far too busy being original to discover that they are not at all. And here we come to the crux of the problem spiritual but religious people have with the church. People, people. If we could only kick out all the human beings, then maybe we could hit their high standard. Lillian goes on to say, being privately spiritual but not religious just doesn't interest me. There's nothing challenging about having deep thoughts all by oneself. What is interesting is doing the work in community where other people might call you out on stuff or, heaven forbid, even disagree with you. 
where life with God gets rich and provocative is when you dig deeply into a tradition that you did not invent for yourself. Part of the nature of religion, she writes, so much beat up in our society is that it delivers a message, and I love this expression, that is like sandpaper against the culture of narcissism. It's not all about you. And no, you don't get to make it up. So thank you for sharing, spiritual but not religious sunset person. You are now comfortably in the norm for self-centered American culture, right smack dab in the middle of the bland majority of people who find ancient religions dull but find themselves uniquely fascinating. Any, again, this is her, not me, any idiot can find God in the sunset. It takes a certain maturity to find God in the person sitting next to you. It takes a certain maturity to find God in the person sitting next to you who not only voted for the wrong political party, but has a baby who is crying while you're trying to listen to the sermon. Community is where the religious rubber meets the road. People challenge us, ask hard questions, disagree, need things from us, require our forgiveness, and on and on. This is where we get to practice all the things we say we believe and preach. It is the church community where people are, now listen to this, stuck with you. That makes Christian community different than other kinds of community. It is for this reason that lack of being committed to any particular community of sinners that the spiritual but not religious miss the point entirely. The church is people who are stuck with you. I think she said something pretty insightful and very, very applicable. And very, very relevant. Snarky, to be sure, but on point. Culture's spiritual but not religious ethos has influenced us far more, family, than we could even possibly realize. And I would say it hasn't been created, but it has been revealed in this unique season across American history, as across churches and denominations widely, attendance numbers have radically plummeted. Even after the facts of COVID have become far more clear. Now that's, that's pretty strong, right? But it's true. And what's more is, even as Christians re-engage many, many other things at much, much higher rates. Do you get the point there? Loose commitment by some who have returned and a hair-trigger readiness to part over disagreements. And all of this veiled in DIY, do-it-your-own, spiritual but not religious spirituality. Hey, I still read the Bible. Hey, I still get together with people. We do this, we go away. I still listen to podcasts. 
And if someone were to think honestly that that is church, they would be guilty of two things. Iso Jesus, fancy word of reading stuff into scripture than reading out, but also in I think Cleet talked about me coining a word. He knew prophetically, not just isogesis, but isomesis. <laughs> like it's all about me. Narcissism on full display. And I would say to you, that mindset does not care for the church like God wants us to care for the church. Like the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Like the one who says, I am building my church and I'm coming back for my glorious bride. And that's why 1 Corinthians 3 is so doggone helpful. At first blush, it is a very complex chapter, but it boils down to this essential truth. God cares deeply about how we care about the church. I don't have an outline. We're just going to run the four images here, okay? Image number one, verses one through four. You all with me? No one's gotten up and left yet. Hopefully you haven't gotten up and left in your heart, right? Um, listen, he's going to say, and this is what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth. It's what he's saying to us today where it applies, me, you, all of us. You are acting like babies. Now let me show you that. Verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh as as infants in Christ, babies in Christ. Now, what's interesting, Paul was always creating new words, speaking of creating words. I don't know if he created these ones, but one of them he might have. Last week, 1 Corinthians 2, he gave us two words. He gave us the word physikoi, which is, could be translated as it is often the natural man, okay? The unregenerate person, the lost person, the person without the spirit, the non-Christian. He also used the word pneumakatoi, pneuma meaning spirit, the person with the spirit. The person with the spirit is the Christian. So he makes things real simple in chapter two. He's trying to encourage them. He says, you're no longer physikoi, you're pneumakatoi. No longer people uh, without the spirit, you have the spirit. But here, he coins a new term. Or he gives us a new term. First time I think it hits the, the, the pages of sacred scripture. He says, you're not physical anymore. You can't be because you have the spirit. But guess what you are? Sarkikoi. Sarkas meaning flesh. You're people of the flesh. You ain't acting like you have the spirit. I did tell you you have the spirit, and you do, but you're not acting like it. You are sarkikoi, or infants in Christ. You're acting like babies. Do you see that? He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. In other words, you are still eating baby food. Now, hold on here. We're not talking about baby Christians, right? Like new Christians. We're not talking about, he's not talking about that. You know, people who are new to the faith, have just trusted Christ, they, they, didn't, they couldn't find 7th Habakkuk in, you know, the, 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 the scriptures. They, they don't even know this in old and new. Like, I thought, I don't know. Nothing. They're not talking about people. We love people like that, right? We want to have people like that. Who everything's new to them. They just know I have been saved through Christ. So he's not talking about people like that. And we find as much joy in such new Christians as a parent does with a new baby. Okay? So he's not talking about that. 
Verses three and four, he dials in on the way they're being carnal, specifically they're being divisive. He says, um, and even now you're not ready for, for like, you know, adult food. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the, for you are of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not still of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Verse 4, if one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not merely being human? And he talked about that in chapter 1, remember? The factions. They're acting baby-like, carnal, in the specific expression of their carnality is divisiveness. Now, again, babies are awesome, aren't they? Oh, man. You know, when they, cute, when they coo, it's, it's cute, right? We celebrate them. We adore them. We love them. We mark with joy their simplest achievements, right? He stood up. No, you held him up, and he didn't fall but for 0.3 seconds. Okay, but we'll, we'll say he stood up, okay? And then you tweet that. My child, he just stood up, and my baby can walk. Well, no, it grabbed one end of the couch and just kind of wrestled its way down. But we celebrate those things as we should. They're babies. They're learning new things. And when they cry, we don't say, you are being so narcissistic. What is your problem? Right? No, we, we go attend to them. What is the, you know, they need a diaper change, or they just need to cry a little bit because they can't do push-ups yet, or do they need to eat? We, we, don't, we don't get mad at them. But I'll tell you this. I have a 17-year-old in my living room playing Xbox, and they yell at me, can you get my, not can you get my Cheetos? And they're crying out like that. We're going to have a much different kind of conversation, right? It's not going to go down just like that. And I think this gets to the root of being a carnal, baby-like Christian. Selfishness. It's all about me. Whether it manifests itself in the ugly face of divisiveness or other ways that he outlines. It's all about me for the carnal Christian. What I think you should do, or what I think you should say, or not say, or not do. Oftentimes with a convenient Proof text slapped on top to sanctify it just a bit. And I'll tell you, I, just, I go to pastor's meetings, EFCA, Acts 29. No shortage of pastors um, who have seen this. Often a pastor will have a meeting at 9 a.m. when someone wants to make an issue, take a stance on this side of an issue with great vehemence. And then you have a 10 a.m. appointment, and someone with great vehemence takes a stance on the other side of the issue. And it's like, why don't I just get you guys together for coffee? That'll make it a lot easier for me. Now, again, it is not wrong to express your viewpoint. In fact, often it's a good thing. It keeps the root of bitterness from thriving. But it's very carnal and very infantile and very baby-like to say, well, I just wasn't heard. When the person was heard, you just don't disagree based on your understanding of Scripture. Do you see the difference? It's a baby like to say, you weren't listening to me. No, I heard you loud and clear, a pastor would say. I just, I don't, I don't fall there. Paul's point is this. Grow up. 
Stop acting like babies. Act mature like you have the Spirit because guess what? After all, you do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen, God cares about you. Look at it, image number, number one, babies, infants. So much, he's willing to challenge us and tell us, maybe you're acting like a baby right now. And that should stop because you're not a baby. Now, let's go on to image number two. Everyone still here? Okay. Field. We'll, we'll hit this one quickly. We are not just, he's saying not just an infant, but we're fields. And this, was, this one isn't, isn't a criticism in the way that the first one is, obviously. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God did what? Gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Paul and Apollos and others, they all did different things, right? But they were merely tools in God's hand because God is the one ultimately who gives the growth, right? Not the one who plants, not the one who waters, not the one who weeds and all of that. We, I should say, my wife Susan has maxed out our city backyard. We have, uh, there's a chicken coop. Uh, there's many things that have been planted in the back, which 99.9 with a bar over percent of it, she, is her, she's done. And against that chicken coop, there is a twisted pitchfork which she'll use sometimes to, to clean out the chicken coop or maybe to break open some uh, ground where she's going to plant. And there's also a flat, uh, flat-headed shovel, which we use to uh, pick up the residue of our dogs, Knox and Lucy. Now, there they are, handing up, just leaning up against that chicken coop. Would it be silly if one of us in the family, myself, or one of the kids said, I'm for the flathead shovel with the residue of dog excrement on. That's who I'm for. Oh, no, I'm for the twisted old pitchfork. That would be silly. Those are tools. Susan is the one who gives the increase, right? So get your eyes off the tools. That's all they are. And when we then factionalize behind a tool, we're actually being tools different definition. You get it, right? So God cares about the church so much, he's telling us, stop factionalizing behind leaders. At this very church, I've literally had someone say that they would not submit to one pastor, but they would to another in a process of trying to see them strengthen and transform. And I tell you, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 101 right there. That is carnality. It fails to recognize their tools were the field. Now let's go on to the third image. This is an image of not just being a building, but also a builder. Now the, the kind of the swinger hinge verse is you are God's field. He goes on to say in verse 9, you are God's building. Then verses 10 through 15 amplify. He tells us, again, I just want to emphasize this. Here, here, here we're all active participants. All of us plant and grow, but it's really aimed towards ministers right there. But he opens up the application in the third image, and he's making a point that not only are we all a building, 
noun, we're also all building verb. We're actively building. Now Paul says something pretty strong in verses 10 and 11. He's not being prideful, he's simply being factual. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you, see each one of you, do you see that? Take care how he builds upon it, how she builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is not being prideful, he's being factual. He, who did he preach? He preached Christ. And by the way, that's why we're about Christ. A church or a Christian organization can do a lot of things that look really good and garner a lot of attention, even, even favor, but if Christ is not at the center, it misses the mark, and it ceases to be a church in any real biblical sense. Paul preached Christ. Now I'm going to read verses 12 through 15 because these may be the most famous verses from 1 Corinthians, certainly from this chapter. This is what he says. Now, again, if anyone, all of us, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will do what? Test what sort of work each has done. Paul is telling us we are all facing a great building inspection. We're all facing a great day of inspection. This is not a judgment for salvation that was conclusively finalized at the cross. But it will be a no-holds-barred assessment of how we built into and built up or demoed the building called the church, obviously being us. That will come out very clearly next image. Now verse 14 tells us for some it's going to be reward. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And we ought not to flinch when we talk about rewards. We're still saved by grace. And even those rewards are by grace. But Jesus, did he not give parables about people with different talents and what they did with it? Jesus talked about this. For those who built up the church and into the church, the body of Christ and the local church, they're going to be rewards. But conversely, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But how? Only as through fire. That's going to be a sad day for some people. That's going to be a sad day. Still saved, but the loss of how you spent your life. In other words, your life wouldn't mean a hill, doesn't mean hill of beans for eternity. And how you invest it into the church will amount to nothing for eternity. And it will be, it will be a moment of some of the deepest regret over the loss of opportunity and time. 
You ever experienced deep regret? I sure have. I'm still chewing on regret. But I know that regret's going to end one day. And I suppose this book is God's going to wipe away every tear. But just think of the regret that will be so strong in that moment. Grace covers all of our sins. But it does not reverse our failure to build into the church on Christ, as Paul said, the cornerstone. God cares about you and how you care about the church so much. He's giving us an opportunity to assess before the great assessment to come. How we're building in the church. And the issue, by the way, is not whether you're building, because everybody's building something. The issue is, how are you building? What kind of building are you doing? This ain't fancy stuff. Faithfulness? That'd be pretty big, right? I think God's fairly big on that. Presence, right? Priority? Serving? Forgiving? I think he's pretty big on that too. Loving? Let me make it personal. Does, reach, does, does restore church love God and people more because you are here? Does restore church pray more because you are here? Does restore church love our neighbors better because you are here? Do people serve better because you're here? I could just go on and on, right? We're builders. So image one, babies. Image two, field. Image three, builders. Finally, the shortest but sharpest image, that of a temple in verses 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in you? In other words, you're acting, you're acting sarkinoi of the flesh, but you're actually numicatoi. So come on, live that way. You have the spirit. Live that way. And, he, and man, that's weighty. He says, you are the temple of, of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is not the individualistic uh, quote focused on our purity, rightly so, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when he appeals to us to use our bodies uh, in a holy fashion, sexually, because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He'll say that later. Here, he's not talking about us individually in the area of unity. He's talking to us collectively in the area of unity. He's saying, you could put it this way, depending on where you're from. Don't y'all know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all? Or do you guys not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you guys? That's the, okay, it's plural. It's, it's for all of us. He's speaking to us, us family. He's speaking to us. And I say this as a weighty truth because, I mean, the first century listener, when they hear temple, they thought that, that special physical structure in the Old Testament where they worship God, Right? or where God's presence was mediated. And God is saying, you are the presence of God. You are the burning bush. You are where I reside. And so this is where he gets pretty heavy. Verse 17, what does he say? He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will slap you on the wrist. 
What does it say? God will destroy him. What? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's highlighting how seriousness he takes attack against the church in the form of divisiveness and other things. He takes it so seriously that if that is that somebody who, who somebody is, they're not even a Christian. And he's going to destroy them, though they might say all the right things and even have a following. He's not playing with that. It says he will do what with that person? Destroy that person. Here's a quote from one of the commentaries that lays on my shelf in my office at the house. He said, quote, this commentator, the person who was built badly may barely escape the flames of God's judgment. Not so the divider. He will be destroyed. Let the factious of the church in Corinth at Corinth and all other churches be warned. Those are some strong words, aren't they? Are those my words? These are the words of the living God. God cares about how you care about the church so much. He warns of his wrath for those who seek to destroy his church. Whether they do it obviously and outwardly as wolves or whether they do it inside and winsomely and insidiously as wolves in sheep's clothing. God cares about how we care for the church. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And he closes with just a couple of things. He closes um, with a little section basically saying, don't succumb to the wisdom of the world that only leads you to carnality. That's a dead-end street that only leads to bad stuff and for some, ultimate and eternal destruction. Verse 19, second part, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Oh, you may look smart now, but not so at that great day to come. For everyone, an assessment. For some, judgment. Instead, he wants us to think about all that we have to walk out our faith in community. He says, verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. That's the first time he says that, and he'll say it a second time in just a moment. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the flat head shovel with some excrement on it, the twisted pitchfork, or the world of life, or, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And that's enough, even when things are tough. God cares about how you and I care about the church. What do you think? This is the Word of God? Now, since I broke every homiletical uh, strategy by opening with a long quote. I'm going to close with a long quote. Not quite as long. It'll be second place in the history of my preaching. It's long, but not that long. This is from a book called The Church Essential. The church is essential, and the church has always been essential. Quote, we're long past the time when we could assume even that even that dedicated believers in Jesus Christ understood why they should bother with church. 
The number who identify as Christians is far larger than the number who attend a weekly meeting. Even then, the bulk of the serving and giving in our churches tend to be done by only a slim few. So it's not as if COVID-19 suddenly convinced Christians they didn't need the church. Millions had already made that decision even before gathering involved online registration, social distancing, mask, and all the rest. Remember I said in the intro, this season has not created stuff, it's revealed it. COVID-19, however, accelerated the long-trending separation between personal faith and organized religion. In other words, a Christian form of SBNR, spiritual but not religious. God invites us to church not because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. Imagine the profound mystery of Christ in the church when the old lady next to you wears too much perfume. When the guy in front of you claps on the wrong beats. Me and John Glennon raise our hand on that. Okay, just me, just me, just me. I shouldn't, I made this into a bully pulpit, I'm so sorry. By the way, I know you have more rhythm than I do, which isn't saying a whole lot. And when your friend on the other side of the aisle forgets to tell you happy birthday. It's harder to imagine that mystery when you're home alone. Because even and especially the awkward members of the body remind us that no one approaches God except by sheer grace. No one can buy a seat at this table. You can only be invited. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, quote, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, end quote. Yes, your very church is the very body of Christ. That goes for the banker who chairs your deacon board and the recovering alcoholic who can't control his body odor. That goes for the homecoming queen who greets you with a smile at the door and the nursery worker who has never been on a date. If you have repented of sin and believed the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, you all belong to Christ and to one another. Paul tells the Romans, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In Christ, your church is perfect. Without spot or wrinkle. That holds true even in a pandemic and through political turmoil. In practice, you already know, or you'll eventually find out, that your church comprises members who still sin against God and one another, even as the Spirit sanctifies them. They step on your toes. They forget to show up for childcare duty. They, they say offensive things 
They demonstrate sinful partiality and does not the list go on. You need to remind yourself of what you cannot see. You return to church because you belong to God. Because Christ gave his body for you that you might be part of his body on earth. And because he gave his body, Christ is made of a body of believers from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Revelation 5.9. God cares about how you care about the church, and he does so rather deeply. Father, I ask that you would take this word of this day and sear it upon the soul of every member of this body. I pray that this word would not only have power in its live listening, but power in its recorded listening. I, pr- I don't know that I've ever prayed that, Lord. I've never even thought about that. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in this room, that you would speak to us as it's listened to in a car, in a coffee shop, in a den at home, in a bedroom, in an apartment, working out wherever, Lord. That we would not mistake this crystal clear truth. You care deeply about how we care for the church. Because Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Because Jesus right now is building his church and Jesus, would you be pleased to use this tool and this message to do so in this place? And because Jesus, you are coming back for us. You've seen our best and you've seen our worst and yet you're coming back open-armed to receive us unto yourself. In the name of the head of our church, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.